Well, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we want to give you a warm welcome in and through Jesus Christ. Today, for our sermon, we will be looking at two passages of Scripture. And so as we look at these two passages of Scripture, um, what I want you to notice is what, the way that I'm going to approach this, I'm going to read part of the Scripture when it comes time that's from Matthew. I'm going to jump and I'm going to read the passage from John, and I'm going to go back to Matthew. The reason is, is that this whole uh, particular place here is one story. And so we're going to pull Matthew and John together, and we're going to talk about Jesus, who is the true and perfect son. That's what we're going to be talking about today. This is part of a series, a four-part series, before we get into the book of Luke to preach through that whole book called Who Am I? And so this passage of Scripture and these things that we're talking about are basically talking about the reality of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, and because of this, we're rescued from judgment. Now, if you have been in the church for a long period of time, you have more than likely been taught that Jesus is the Son of God. I hope so. And you've probably recited the words of the creed, I believe in, one, in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. You're probably familiar with those terms, those words. But what does this actually mean? And why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What does it actually mean? Today we're going to see that Jesus is the Son of God, and because of this, He alone can rescue us from judgment. Now before I read the Scriptures, I want to um, give you a little bit of context for these passages we're talking about. The ultimate context of the New Testament is that God and humanity are at odds. And it was this way shortly after creation. Even though God promised to one day send someone to save the world, Death and misery reigned in this world for about 4,000 years. And the only glimmer of hope was God's people, who were not very good at loving him. For most of their history, they looked more like the rest of the world, evil and unjust. Generation after generation came and went, but still nobody came to save the world. And then seemingly, out of nowhere, two men were born. John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, both of their births were miraculous. So John was born to an elderly woman who was past the age of being able to bear children. And Mary and Joseph, a young couple, it seemed to everyone that they bore Jesus. But Jesus' birth was truly unique because Jesus is the only one in history who was born without a human father. Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit himself. Though everybody else on the outside looked at it, they did not know that Jesus Christ was a man who was born from the Holy Spirit. And so had no sin when he was born. Jesus was the only son born of a woman whose father was not 
I said, I understand that, right? There's only been two people in history that have had no sin to start off with. Well, you could say three. Adam and Eve, right? And then Jesus. Adam and Eve were created perfectly without sin. And then when they sinned, every single person after was born in sin, except for Jesus Christ, who was born from a father who was and the creator of all. And so, he is and always was God. We learned that last week, that Jesus is eternal. He is the only begotten of the Father, not created. And by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal God, Jesus, the Son, added a human body and a reasonable soul to himself. The eternal God would now have a human nature, and he would grow up just like us, except for sin. Except for evil. Jesus grew up honoring his heavenly father and his earthly father and mother. His whole childhood could be summarized in two things. He loved God with everything he had. His heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. This was Jesus' life. It was a life of love to God and love to others. He was the only one who did that perfectly. His entire life, even as a child, and all the way up until he was about 30 years old, was one that sought to do what God wanted. You know that prayer we prayed? Your will be done, your kingdom come. Jesus is the only one who actually lived that perfectly. And so, now in the account that we are about to read here, Matthew 3, 13 to 17, and John 1, 29 to 34, he is actually now about 30 years old. Matthew 3, 13 to 14. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Then we go to John. The next day he saw Jesus, that is John the Baptist, coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Then back to Matthew 3. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, that is John the Baptist. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom? I am well pleased. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son. The grass withers, 
the flowers they fade, but the word of God is forever. And all God's people say, amen. Father, would you come and fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would my words be pleasing to you? My thoughts, my meditations be honoring to you? And would every word be used to draw your people into Christ, into his fullness, into his resurrection power, that the Holy Spirit would be in control of each one of us as Jesus was, as he was filled with the Holy Spirit and it rested upon him and so gave the Holy Spirit after his resurrection and after his ascension. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would make us people who would have the Holy Spirit guiding and controlling us in all that we do and say. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start off with Matthew 3, 13 to 14. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Here, John, he is the final Old Testament prophet. He actually is, is in this weird place because he's a prophet right in between both the Old and the New Testament. He was of the Old Order and the New Order all at the same time. The message that he was preaching was a message of repentance. He was saying to Israel, you have sinned. You need to turn and repent. The message was that the time had come. The kingdom of God had finally arrived in the person of God, the Messiah, who came in the flesh. And all needed to turn to him to repent or they would face punishment. John's baptism represented repentance and cleansing from sin toward God and aligning with his kingdom. You know, as you, as you think of through this, when he says the kingdom is at hand, he's saying, hey, what Jesus is bringing is his kingdom, and you should kind of step along with it. He's the king, and he's telling you that this is the way things are. So you should kind of submit to the king. You know, in nations across the world, when people refuse to submit to the king, bad things happen. And so this is the message of John. I've got hope for you and grace for you as you follow the king, but you need to follow the king. So let's look first at Jesus, a humble God who is for us. So at the outset, things are not going as expected. First, you notice that Jesus, he comes from Galilee. Now, if you look at the book of Mark, it says he came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, Nazareth was a little tiny town that everybody thought was nothing. And that's why one of the disciples said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus picked a town to come from that everybody thought was nobody lived there. Nothing good ever came from it. And the king of kings came from Nazareth and grew up in that town. Now, he was originally born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And so this is the amazing thing. Why would God show up in a humble neighborhood? There wasn't really much of anything. The second thing is, is that Jesus comes to John to be baptized. Now, Jesus has already lived the perfect life. This is a baptism of repentance. Why in the world would Jesus submit to a baptism of repentance when he was, didn't need to repent? Have you ever thought about that? So now that he has already lived his life loving God and fulfilling all of God's 
requirements, he is now embarking on his official ministry. So he's grown up, he's lived about 30 years, and now it's time to go into the official ministry that he's begun. And it says that Jesus says that he must fulfill all righteousness. What in the world does that mean? He needs to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, he begins by entering into the place or stead of his people. Do you know why Jesus Christ is being baptized? Because he is Israel. Jesus Christ is the second Adam who has come to represent all humanity. He is true Israel. And Israel has spent thousands of years in rebellion and sin against God. And so for Jesus to come and to bear the sin of Israel, he needed to repent for them. He needed to repent on behalf of them. He was saying, Father, we as Israel have sinned. I represent Israel, and I am coming to you in repentance for all the evil and sin that they have done by not loving you, by not serving you, by not obeying you. This was the baptism of repentance. He is baptized on behalf of Israel. He represents us. He represents them on their behalf. Even though Jesus didn't need repentance, he didn't need cleansing, he identified with sinful people. He came to save us through his substitutionary life and death. This is the gospel. So guess what? The baptism is a picture of the gospel. Jesus repents on behalf of you and me. And do you know what? Because he's perfect, God receives that. God receives our repentance because Jesus, Jesus paid for it. Jesus took it on himself. He took the load of our sin upon his shoulders and he would take it all the way up to the cross until he was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our sin. The chastisement of God's people was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. Jesus, secondly, is the true Passover. Next, in John 1, 29-31, we read, He, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for the purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, if you ever read that before, that's like pretty complex. There's a lot of words in there. And it's like, what is going on here? Basically, as John looks at Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, reveals to him insight that no one else has. Then John proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of the final exodus where the ultimate Passover lamb is slain to take away the sins not only of Israel, but of the whole world, you and I. And everyone else calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all who turn would be delivered from Satan and his captivity. You see, John makes a declaration that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. This is what these verses are saying. 
That Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Jesus is what everybody's waiting for. God would be their God and they would be his people. Jesus came to break the power of sin, to wipe away the penalty of all the evils, things that you and I have done. What we did yesterday, what we're doing now that's sin, what we're doing the rest of the day, what we've done all throughout our life, everything that you've done, every heap and every shameful thing that you've ever done, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would take those upon himself so that you would be completely clean, that you would be saved, and that you would be able to stand before the, the maker of heaven and earth, and he would look at you and will say to you, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. This is what you have because you, if you trust in Christ, receive his righteousness and you have all your sin taken upon, uh, sin is put on him. And so you can have the father declare you to be the son or daughter that is pleasing to him. Jesus is this one that everybody is waiting for to break the power of Satan, to wipe away the penalty for our sins and give the great gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. This is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Can you imagine that God sends his son and then gives you his spirit to be in God himself living in you. This is what Jesus gives. Jesus gives. So John had previously said, the one who comes after me is ahead of me because he existed before me. And basically what he's saying here is, he's making a statement about Jesus' nature as God. He's saying, you know, I'm the older one. If you know John the Baptist, John was born before Jesus. So what John the Baptist is saying here is, Jesus is pre-existent. The one who came after me is before me. He's before me because he always was. He was eternal. And he came in flesh. And he was not just began his existence in that womb. Jesus was eternally existing. And so John comes and says that up to this point, he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. So he, he, he and maybe he had an inkling. It's hard to say. I don't know how his, his cousin through Mary like wouldn't recognize that. But all of a sudden, here, he does. And he's like, hey, this is the one, the Messiah that everybody's been waiting for. It's this guy. And so he fulfills the purpose of his ministry now that the Messiah is revealed, and which is why he says, I must decrease and he must increase. John the Baptist's ministry, the Old Testament, it fades because Jesus now is the new. He's the fulfillment of all the old. Now, Jesus, thirdly, is the perfect, uncreated, new creation. Now, you're going to have to stick with me for a while. I'm saying this particularly precisely. He is the perfect, uncreated, new creation. He is the second Adam. So, John sees Jesus coming to be baptized, and so we read then in Matthew 3, 14, 17, John would have prevented him. 
saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. John clearly sees the chief he doesn't need to repent. Instead, John saying, I need to repent. I need to be cleansed. And so he tries to refuse Jesus. I'm not baptizing you. And Jesus, however, had to be baptized to fulfill his life's purpose, to do the will of God and be a substitute. And so John then, okay, this is the king of the universe. I think I'll go ahead and baptize you if you're telling me I must. Right? This is, what, this is what's going on. He's like, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says, I have to baptize him. I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway because he kind of has full authority. So I'm going to do what he says. Like, there's this underlining drone here, right? John the Baptist says no, and Jesus says yes. So John the Baptist says, okay. So what you see here is something incredible happens at the baptism of Jesus. First, the heavens open, and the Spirit hovers over, and then rests upon Jesus in the form of a dove. This language, the heavens opened, is you go and look at the Old Testament. This is the language of prophetic visions. What is happening in this prophetic vision here is that John and Jesus have the heavens open and see the reality, what is actually going on. Jesus Christ this scene is, 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 is a, a sign of G to, to show Jesus' symbolic empowerment of, for the ministry. Not only symbolic, but in actuality. But I don't know if you catch this, but there's another place in the Bible that uses the language of the Spirit resting or hovering. Anybody guess where that is? Creation, Genesis chapter 1, and the Spirit of God over the waters. You know what's going on here? If you look in the book of Mark, this is a creation. Jesus Christ is being put forward as the uncreated, the eternal God, who is now entering into flesh, and he's the second Adam. If you go and look for at all the imagery found in Mark and Matthew and John and Luke, what you're going to see is Jesus Christ is the new creation. Do you want to know what happens in Matthew chapter 4, the next chapter? Anybody know? Take a guess. He gets baptized. The Spirit comes upon him and the Spirit takes him somewhere. The wilderness, right? What happens in the wilderness? He's tempted. Does that sound familiar? Who was tempted last time? Adam and Eve. Jesus is going through the exact same thing that Adam and Eve were going through. But this time, Jesus, the second Adam, is going to get it. He's not going to fall and rebel against God. He's going to say, my food, 
It's not this bread that I haven't had for 30 days. My food is to do what God wants. I'm not going to rely on myself. I'm not going to use my power. I'm going to walk in God's power. This is the second Adam. And so Jesus, as the creator, and now in a sense we see him as the uncreated new creation, and the Father is speaking then from heaven and providing a declaration. This, was, this is the, the, the idea of, hey, everybody, pay attention. Jesus Christ has actually passed the last 30 years with an A++++++. He has done nothing wrong and only done good for 30 years. He is completely pleasing. And do you know where you see other language about, and God said that it was very good. What is God doing? Same as creation here. He's declaring not only Jesus very good, but perfect and well-pleasing. It's the same kind of idea as in creation. Jesus Christ, the new creation, is the perfect creation, completely great. Now remember, he's uncreated. So I said the new creation, right? So Jesus Christ then is the one who is fully and completely pleasing to the Lord. Now, the reality of, of, of all of this is it should remind us of the sixth day of creation and all the rest of creation. The Gospel of Mark uses language that makes it clear, but John has already framed Jesus as the Word of God, God, the light of the world, the life of men, and on top of this, we're going to see the story of Adam and Eve play out in Jesus' life of temptation. We are seeing a kind of second creation with the perfect man, the second Adam, who will succeed for us and then allow us to enter and stay in the rest. Do you remember the result of Adam's fall? He got kicked out of the garden of the presence of God. What's the result of Jesus' work? You get God's presence living in you. I have Jesus in me. The hope of glory. And if you've trusted in him, if you have believed in him, if you have confessed with your mouth, if you believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you have God in you. The garden Jesus restores us to so that we can walk with God in the cool of the day. Man, praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Father. Praise you, Spirit. For the full, abundant life in us. I pray now, Father, that you would bring this reality in as we continue to look at this passage into each and every one's heart and mind and soul. I pray that they would experience and know Christ Jesus in this real powerful way with the Spirit in them. And I pray that anyone who's in here who doesn't know you right now, that in this moment, that you would open their eyes and show them the beauty and glory of Christ. Redeem them by your power, Lord Jesus. But I want you to see something. The Spirit did not just kind of show up. You know what he did with Jesus? It says he rested on Jesus. Now, we'll fast forward a little bit. Holy Spirit comes down, right? In the form of a dove. Now, doves are gentle, right? Meek. So, at Pentecost, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit on his people, what form did the Spirit take? Fire. Jesus gets a dove. You and I get fire. Any idea why? 
We need purified. Jesus doesn't. When the Spirit comes upon you, He begins to purify you and clean you from the inside out. When the Spirit rested on Jesus, it was straight up empowerment because He didn't need purify. Then, number four, I don't know, four perhaps, I don't. I lost track, sorry, is the one and only beloved Son. Notice that Jesus is not simply perfect, but He's beloved. Jesus is the one and only Son who is not only dearly loved by the Father, but who also pleases the Father. I mean, you think about this. He pleases God. He makes God happy. Do you think that you make God happy? Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, you are in him. He is in you. And you are well pleased. Please believe it. Because you are seen through the eyes of Christ. You are seen through Christ. So, have you ever seen one of those mirrors that you have, the little vanity mirrors that you hold to do makeup or whatever? Plastic one? Generally speaking, you have one side that's the glass and another side that's not, right? Not the mirror. Why? Because if you set it down, you want to set it down on the side so that the glass doesn't get scratched or whatever. So that's just kind of like the way. Now there's some that are double-sided, but a lot of them. So when you and I pick up the mirror and we look at ourselves, what do we see? Our flaws, our sin the way we failed to love God, the way we failed to love others, how we've been angry at our spouse, we've been angry at our parents, we've cheated, we've lied, we've stolen, we've done all these different things. That's the way we feel. That's the way it looks when we look at the mirror, correct? But the thing is, what Jesus has done is it's almost like the back of the mirror, you know, if you were looking at me, you would be looking at the back of the mirror right now, right? If I got this here. So if I put this in front of my face, what you see my hands, right? Imagine on the back of my hands is Christ. And when God looks at you, He doesn't see the sin. He sees Christ perfectly pleasing to the Father. That is how you are seen. And so your job, my job, on a day-to-day basis is to stop looking at ourselves and start looking at Jesus. Because once you start looking at Jesus, you will become a different person. And so you must not allow yourself to look at the mirror. You must allow yourself to look at Christ. Now, there is reflection we have in our life, like, I've sinned, forgive me. But that's not what you are. That's not who you are if you're in Christ. You are clean. You are washed. In Psalm 2, 7 to 8, Jesus said, the, uh, 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 the Lord said to me, this is the, to the psalmist, but this is Jesus speaking. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession." Here the Messiah King will subdue the nations to God. And then in Isaiah 42.1 that we read, 
part of a larger section that outlines God's salvation for Israel through the suffering servant. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul, my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Do you know what? God the Father took Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 and put them together in that moment and said, this, Jesus, is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, everything we expected, my beloved son, and Isaiah 42. That's what Jesus, that's what the Father was saying when he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because he rested the Spirit. So he said, I'm pleased, and he sent the Spirit that rested upon him. So cool. So cool. The servant of God who would do the will of God to bring the nations to God. But notice here that the Spirit was put upon him by the Father. By the Father. Now, finally, Jesus crushed for us. The Father blends these two declarations together, and the Psalm 2 was sung at the crowning of Israel's kings. And so it identifies Jesus as a divinely appointed king who would rule with divine authority and whose kingdom would never Isaiah 42 speaks of Jesus as the servant of God and Messiah, who in Isaiah 53, would see, we would see that he was pierced for our rebellion and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus is king and savior. And what this shows to us is that Jesus' ministry would be to suffer and die, to rise on the third day, to restore God's people to a right relationship with him by bearing their iniquities and sins. And this is pleasing to God. Do you know what made God happy? Jesus being crushed for you. Not that he was like delights in Jesus Christ and him being brutal, brutally murdered and suffered, but he delights in what Jesus willingly undertook. The Father and Son and Spirit all agreed that this is what they would do, not just Jesus. It's not some angry father who's up, up there in heaven waiting for the shoe. You've got to wait for his shoe to drop. It is the father who sent the son. The father engaged you by sending his son, and it pleased him to crush Jesus so that you and I would have his spirit live in us and we would walk in him. This is the gospel. What it showed us is that the Father would give up his own, his son, his only son, his unique son, to bring us into his family. You and I get to be a part of the family of God through Jesus. But what is incredible is that instead of just using this language, you are my son, he adds my beloved son. This word beloved is a word which carries the meaning of one who is in a very special relationship with the another. God declares that Jesus is the messianic king who has a unique relationship with him. And so the immediate context shows us that Jesus is the only or beloved son of the father who has come to earth to complete God's mission to redeem a people for himself through his suffering, death, and resurrection. But he is the one on whom the father takes special pleasure or delight in. His son, he is infinitely pleased with Jesus as his eternal son, but he is also pleased with Jesus as the Messiah and suffering servant. In other words, as Jesus accepts and identifies with Israel, being willing to take upon their sin, he pleases 
And so in John 1, 32 to 34, he says the Spirit descends upon him and remains. And so John the Baptist is a witness to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, here's the question. I want to kind of conclude with this, this question. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of the Father? So I don't know if you know this, but most scholars say there's four senses of Jesus being the Son. The first is a messianic sense. In other words, Jesus is God's chosen deliverer of God's people who would suffer and die for them. That's seen in Psalm 2, Isaiah 42. So first is a messianic sense. He is the chosen one who would redeem God's people. Second is an origin sense. In other words, he has no human father. He truly is of the Father and the Son are truly one in essence, and he was eternally begotten of the Father. He has no human father. He's the God from all eternity. Third, there's this ethical and religious sense. In other words, he's perfect, and he obeys the Father like a son should. So that's the third sense. And then, and, and he does the Father's what the Father wants, not what he wants. And then fourth, in eternal sense, he has been the Son from all eternity. So from all this, what do we see? That Jesus didn't become God's Son through adoption or election. That's heresy. Okay? That is false doctrine. Jesus Christ did not become God's son at his baptism. Jesus was God's son eternal. That's super important. Super important. And so he is God's unique son from all time. And as such, he has an utterly unique and amazing relationship with the father. And so we look throughout the gospel of John and the rest of the gospel, and this is what it means. There are six things that it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. Jesus as God's Son has been sent into the world by the Father. And this is what I told you already. God sent the Son for you. The Father sent the Son for you. You were not some afterthought or something where the Son is like, well, he's mad at you, so I'm going to come and I'm going to die for you. No, 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 no. The Father delighted in you. The Father. You are delighted in by God the Father because he chose to send his only begotten son for you and for me. That changes Because now you're not waiting for the Father to drop the shoe. Right? You drop the other shoe. Oh my goodness, God's after me. No, he sent his son. If he sent his son, won't he give you all things? That's what Paul says in Romans. You don't have to fear him. Not in Christ. So then, second, as Jesus is the Son of God, return to the Father. Right before the crucifixion, Jesus knew it was time for him to leave the world and go to the Father. You see, because he's of the Son, the son of the Father, he's going to go back to the Father to prepare a way. And then third, Jesus as the Son is dependent upon the Father. And he says in John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus is in absolute unity with the Father and dependent upon him as Son. Do you know that's what you're supposed to do? Do you know you're not supposed to live in, in independence and like a big grown-up? Like, it's like, well, I got to do this on my own. Do you know that Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came down and in our flesh, he said, I don't do anything unless I see my Father do it. If you heard me say that, you would think that I had a problem psychologically. If I said, hey, I got to call my dad. I'm not sure what I should do. 
You'd be like, does this guy grown up at all? Wouldn't you? You'd say he's got some sort of disorder. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's the way life works. That's the way life works. You, dependent upon God, and only doing whatever God is doing. Um, so fourth, Jesus is a son of God, reveals the Father. He just mentioned that in the prologue. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus is the only one who has ever seen the Father. He is the only way to the Father. If you want to go to be with God, you've got to know the Father. You've got to know the Father through Jesus. Um, six, Jesus, as the Son of God, is the object of the Father's love. The Father's love for the Son leads him to a place to place everything in Jesus' hands. The Father loves him because he willingly laid down his life. And this loving relationship between the Father and Son was from all eternity. It's absolutely and completely unique. And you and I get to enter into that love. Don't you just in the bottom of your soul want to be loved without strength? Don't you? Don't you want to have to, don't you want to be able to live and not have to earn your way? Like not have to prove yourself at work? Prove yourself as a father, prove yourself as a mother, prove yourself as a daughter or a son. Don't you just want to be able to enjoy life and live knowing that somebody's pleased with you? I will tell you that I live before an audience of God. I am not up here to try to please you. I am here to try to please my father. He is the only one who matters. And guess what? He is pleased with me, regardless of how good or bad today's sermon was. I don't have to get up tomorrow morning or later today and say, oh my goodness, the sermon was too short, it was too long, it was too this, it was too that. I don't have to think that way. I get to walk in my work knowing that I please the Father. You kids get to go to school, you older ones get to go to school, and do your best, and know that God is pleased with you because of Christ. You don't have to earn anything. And that means you can be happy and enjoy your life. Because you know that God is happy. Sure, we have to repent of sins. Like, right, if we do things to make our father upset, we need to talk to him, right? You kids do ever do that? You ever apologize to your dad when you, like, say something, or your mom, when you say something terrible to them? If you don't, you should. Right? Look at all of you. See? Right? But your dad doesn't hate you because you did something wrong. He still loves you. You're still loved. You don't have to, like, i got to clean my time my room 40 times now because I messed up once and I didn't clean it. And then my father will give me affection. That's the way you're functioning. Do you know that? Practically in a day-to-day life, you and I function like that when we try to earn our way. God says, nope, nothing is earned. Everything is a free gift. Here's Jesus. So this is, has ramifications practically for everything you do, for your marriage, for your relationship with your mother and your father, for everything, for your relationship with your parents. Guess what, men? If you never heard from your father, I'm proud of you, guess what? You don't need to hear it. If he's dead and never said that to you, you don't have to somehow try to keep working and keep going to prove yourself to be the person that he wanted you to be because he 
is a flawed man, and what he wants is not what God wants all the time. And so all you have to do is look to your father and say, I am pleased in Christ Jesus, and so I don't have to get that promotion. If I get it, wonderful. But if I don't, I don't need it. Because you don't have to earn anything. Finally, Jesus, as the Son of God, holds a unique relationship with the Father. Jesus has such a unique relationship with the Father that no one knows the Father except with Him, and no one knows Him except the Father, so much so that no one can know the Father unless Jesus reveals Him to them. He and the Father are one. And brothers and sisters, right now, Jesus is the Father is revealing Christ to you in this moment. If you don't know Him, He is revealing Him to you now. And that shows His love for you. The fact that you are even so if you don't know Jesus, turn to him. And all you have to say is, I know that the grace, your grace, paid for all my sin through Jesus Christ. I give my life to you, and I'm not going to try to earn my way to you. I'm going to rest in Jesus and live my life for you for all my days. And this is what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. He has an utterly unique and amazing relationship with the Father. In fact, it is so unique that no one else can have this kind of relationship with God on their own. But you have this unique relationship because you're in Christ Jesus. Lord God, may your people be so enthralled, consumed with Christ, that they would delight in you and know that in Christ you delight in them. Would you take away any father wounds, any mother wounds, any wounds that are deep and cut to the core of who they are that make them feel that they have to earn or work or be a slave? Would you allow them to be free, allow us all to be free in Christ Jesus so that no longer are we a slave, no longer or we, do we walk in this way of trying to prove ourselves, but we walk in the reality of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died for us. Thank you so much. We praise you, and we worship you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.